Welcome to the church family that is lifting lives through living love, inspiring hope, filling with faith, and transforming our world. These recorded messages are made available so that you might have additional opportunities to stay connected with us, and then you might learn and grow in your faith. God bless you as you hear the word today. And now, the message. Morning, everyone. Our reading today comes from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-7. through 7. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown, except by competing according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word. So if you'll recall, back in August, we started a process with Fuller Youth Institute called Growing Young. And they came in August and did a site visit, and part of our consulting was that they would come back in the spring and do another site visit. And so this weekend, um, Friday evening and yesterday, our team and several people from the church came and um, spent time with um, Andy and Steve, and we had a great learning session yesterday all about young people. We actually had a panel of young adults, um, Anna Kelly, Isaac Kitchell, and Kara Connolly, who came and shared some insights with us. And so it's been an honor and a privilege to have them here this weekend. And this morning, Steve, argue, Steve, why don't you come up here? Um, he is going to share some words with us this morning, but Steve has done lots of research on young adults. He works for Fuller Youth Institute and um, has a lot of knowledge around that. And so we are just thrilled that you're here to share that with Thanks us this year. Thank you so much. Yeah, yes. so good to be here. Thanks. You're welcome. Let's All welcome right. Steve. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. You going to stay up with me? No, no. <laughs> well, together. we can We can do this. Yeah, we yeah. could. We could. We would make a great team, I think. Good morning, everybody. Great to see all of you. Thanks so much for having us. Uh, I just bring you greetings from, uh, I would say sunny California, but it's been more like rainy California. And it's, I'm originally from the Midwest and it's kind of fun. I know you're sick of the snow. I'm actually kind of liking it this morning. Andy and I were taking pictures as we came into the church this morning because we were so excited about it. Um, just really glad to be with you and I'm uh, really glad to share uh, the, the, the passage uh, today. Now, I, I spend uh, a lot of time in my work at the Fuller Youth Institute and as a professor of uh, Fuller Seminary teaching on youth, family, and culture. Uh, I spend a lot of time researching the spiritual lives of young people and the way that they're sort of navigating faith and, and doubt. And I also spend a lot of time uh, working with churches that are trying to create environments um, that cultivate spiritual growth in our young people all the way up uh, to our older types as well. And I'll let you decide if you're a younger type or an older type. I'm not going to go there. I'll let you decide that. Uh, but what's interesting is this, is let me just let you in on a little secret from a researcher point of view. Most churches that we talk to love young people. Like, like they, they, they care about young people. Like they want young people to succeed. They want to do whatever they can to help young people, which is so amazing. 
And here's the other little secret I want you to know. Most young people really respect churches. They actually believe that you're doing good in the world, and there's a little bit of respect for that. So isn't this interesting that you've got churches that love young people and young people that seem to say that churches are all right, but sometimes we feel this tension of like, maybe some of you are like, well, where are the young people? Like, what are we, what are we thinking about the next generation? Or we're really worried about like what's happening with where our church is at and where young people are at. And in some ways, I think the work that you've been doing uh, here with Growing Young is sort of asking these deeper sort of questions. And they're really, really important. What's interesting is this, is that as Ashley mentioned, we had a panel of young adults uh, at our training uh, yesterday. Uh, and I asked them this really interesting question. I said, describe the church that you bring your friends to. Now, that's not just a young adult question. Maybe that's a question for each of us. Describe the church that you bring your friends to. Their answers were amazing. And let me just give you a little insight of that conversation as well. When they answered that question, they didn't talk about the style of music. They didn't talk about a particular sort of way you have to be or dress or become or what the church has to look like. Uh, they talked about something much more profound. It wasn't programmatic. It was actually more about the relational. And I think what's interesting about that is that I felt like some of the things that they were trying to describe were, were these longings for what you all have been talking about the last couple of weeks, these encounters with Christ. Now, the passage that we just read, Paul is also speaking to his young protege, Timothy, and he's also sort of calling out like, hey, let me remind you what we're actually doing together. He even says, join me in this process of being and imitating in many ways good soldiers, good athletes, good uh, farmers. And actually the next passage in verse eight, he says, this is my gospel. So somehow there's this relational impulse that Paul is trying to disseminate to his young protege, Timothy, and his followers of Jesus that have the scriptures, we get to listen in. And so what I'd love to do with you in this passage is sort of unpack these images of what it means to sort of live out the gospel in light of this metaphor of a soldier and a athlete and a, 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 a farmer. Shall we do that? Like, what are you going to say? You're not going to say no, right? I'm up here, right? I got the microphone. Let's see what we can do, okay? So let's talk about soldiers for a second. Now, uh, what, what Paul says is that um, soldiers don't get involved in, uh, uh, get entangled in civilian affairs. Now, a lot of times when we think about soldiers, or like in this case, a Roman soldier, sometimes we think like they're out all the time fighting battles, and it's really epic, and all this stuff is happening. But the life of a Roman soldier was... Uh, not really that exciting. Uh, his territories were taken over and towns were sort of accumulated into the Roman Empire. The job of the soldier was to simply be in a town and keep the peace. Uh, imagine them standing on a street corner in their Roman attire, their military attire, making sure that the peace was kept. Now, this soldier wearing this Roman soldier attire uh, has an air of power, an air of authority. They speak on behalf of the emperor to keep 
the peace in the town. Now imagine having that sort of power in which you're wearing. The soldier in many ways has a choice. They can use this power for the benefit of the community that they're called to serve, or they can use this power for the benefit of themselves. And a lot of times this happened, right? The power that I have, I can use for the benefit of others, or I can do, use it for the benefit of ourselves. Now, let's just stop there for a second. We are not Roman soldiers, but I guarantee you this, we all have power. We have power of wisdom. We have power of wealth. We have power of maybe standing. We have power of youthfulness. We have power of energy. We all have sort of different types of power. And the gospel calls us to ask a really powerful question. How will I use the power that I have? Will I use it for the sake of others or will I use it for the sake of ourselves? And we're tempted, I think, sometimes with our power, especially in Christian circles, to actually use our power for ourselves. And sometimes it comes through in what I will call propaganda. Propaganda is when we begin to so want our position to be the right position in our conversations or in our family conversations or the, the political views we have or whatever it might be, that we will do whatever we can to silence the opposition, shame the opposition, quiet the opposition, so that somehow only our position is the one that is seen and heard. Because we have the scarcity mindset that if we are not the ones that are right, um, we have to somehow put everybody else down so that we can get it there. Okay? So this idea of propaganda can happen. And ladies and gentlemen, we know that in a lot of churches, there's more propaganda than gospel sometimes preached. The other temptation is this temptation of not propaganda, but just privilege. Now, we have in many ways privilege, again, by the status that we have, the social capital that we have, um, the, the places that we run in society, we have the sense of privilege. And we know we have privilege when we can see injustices in the world and we say to ourselves, we don't say it out loud, we say it like in our subconscious, well, it doesn't affect me. It doesn't affect my life. I can keep doing what I'm doing even though this is happening over there. Our privilege allows us to sort of fly over the injustices of the world and continue to live our lives. It's a luxury that we sometimes have. Imagine a Roman soldier sitting, standing on the corner and turning a blind eye to injustices that they see. They're not using their power for the sake of others. They're using it for the power for the sake of themselves. So the gospel calls us to something quite powerfully, I think, that Paul is getting at to Timothy. Will you use your power for others or will you use your power for yourselves? When we use our power for others, we listen to others. When we use our power for others, we take into account others' perspectives, storylines, journeys. When we use our power, we stop long enough to give people the benefit of the doubt rather than superimposing our judgment on them without listening to them first. And when we use our power for others, we echo the very words of Jesus, who on the night that he was betrayed and in the mornings that we celebrate communion, he says to his disciples, here is my body and blood for you. The gospel says out loud to each one of us, I am for you. And this is what we say to each other. Can you think of somebody in your life right now that you just need to say to them, you know, I'm for you. I'm going to use whatever power I have, whatever influence I have, whatever relationship I have, not to serve myself, but to actually watch out for you, to do whatever I need to do, to make the time for you, to invest in you, to actually do that. The gospel says, I am for you. And this is what we echo to each other. 
Okay, soldiers, okay? Let's talk about athletes for a second. So when we think about this idea of athletes, I think what's interesting in this passage is we, we see, uh, the Paul says something about like, when people compete, they compete according to the rules. What I find interesting about uh, like athletes in general is that sometimes we sort of put them on a pedestal because we see them at the big game on the weekend or in the big meet or whatever it might be. But 90% of an athlete's life is getting up before the crack of dawn and going through the work that they have to do. You there is no shortcut to athleticism. There's no shortcut to being the best at what you're doing as an athlete. And so there's something about that where there's a discipline that comes with that. And that discipline is very personal, but it also is very relational because as we live out the discipline of a particular sport, we find that a lot of times we have teammates that are there and we're doing that as well. So we are bound in many ways to the discipline that we are a part of, but we are also bound to each other. Now, what's interesting about that is this, is that if we're bound to each other, we recognize the fact that there's something quite amazing about the way that we interact with each other. Faith works this way as well. Some of the research would suggest that faith journeys have this contagiousness to it. So a lot of times what we'll learn from, about young people as they're sort of finding their way with faith, that they will report back, that they will feel anxious, that they will feel scared, and they will feel vulnerable. And when they try to express that to uh, other family members, or to parents or to other adults, do you know what happens? Adults begin to feel anxious and scared and vulnerable. Isn't that interesting that there's a relational dynamic where there's this element of vulnerability that comes as we, as we listen to each other and as we journey together. Now in that moment, if I hear someone that's expressing, expressing their journey and they're feeling anxious or vulnerable, I have an opportunity. I can either step toward that person to be with them, or I can step away and just kind of go, I hope you figure it out. Let me try to give you an athletic example to maybe uh, uh, illustrate this a little bit more. Uh, so one of the, the things that I enjoy doing, it's um, something I'm committed to, is um, I, I'm a runner and I run uh, marathons. And you're probably going, he is crazy. That's fine. You can say that. Um, now, what's interesting about marathons is uh, in, I live in Pasadena, and Pasadena is a very like hilly sort of environment. There's a lot of mountains and things like that. But there's one place that I run where there's like this five-kilometer loop. And when you are trained for marathons, basically what you're doing is you're just teaching your body to run for a long time. Now, this loop that I run is only 5K, and if I'm trying to run uh, a really long distance, like for, you know, two, three hours to train my body, I'm going around this loop over and over again. Now, what's interesting is this, is that as I'm running this loop, there are other people running the loop, and runners kind of have this communication with each other. Like, the first time you run past a runner, you kind of give the runner's nod, because you basically are saying to each other, is like, you're a runner, so am I. So it's like this. That's all it is, but it says so much, right? The second time you run into that same runner, you realize that you're both crazy. Like you're just like running a long time. So now it's more like the smile or the point, like, hey, we're in this together. But then after a couple of hours, sometimes you see the same runner over and over again. And you are like becoming fast friends because you're like in misery uh, together, okay? Now, one time I was doing this loop, preparing for a marathon, and I see this guy. Uh, I'm going to call him Running Man. 
he was called Running Man because he had a shirt that said Running Man. Okay, older gentleman, big gray beard, beard, and just really, really, uh, just a fabulous guy. And we would run past each other, and we'd be like, "You go, you go, yay!" You know, whatever. Um, but then one time, toward the end of this long run that I was doing, he had Running Man had seen me like a few times, and he saw that I was slowing down. I turn the corner. He turns the corner. We're coming at each other, and he stops in the middle of the road, and he looks at me, and he goes, you go, you go, you go. What do you think I did? Well, I went. I was like, running man believes in me. I am going to keep going, okay? Now, let, I'm going to set that story over here. Now, here's the other story, okay? Uh, I'm, I'm running um, the Los Angeles Marathon. Now, if any of you know anything about marathon running, you know that there's this period in the marathon called the wall. The wall happens somewhere between uh, mile 18 and mile 22. And between this space, this is the point where in your mind as a runner, you're thinking to yourself, I've either trained for this marathon correctly, I'm on pace to complete the marathon, and I have what it takes to kick in the last 10K, and this is going to be a good race. The other thing that's going in your mind is that sometimes, for whatever reason, your body begins to shut down and you realize that this 10K is going to be a struggle and you're just hoping to get in. So this is a really vulnerable space for a runner. Now, in the Los Angeles Marathon that I was doing, I was at around that time, 18 to 20, uh, 22 miles, around mile 20, and I'm running and this is vulnerable conversation is going on in my head. And I look over to my right because there's, you know, there's uh, spectators that, you know, cheer you on or whatever. And, um, and there was a group of people sitting in lawn chairs uh, on the side of the road uh, with giant venti Starbucks and donuts. And I go by and they raise their glasses to me and they go, you're almost there. Now, I am an ordained minister of the gospel. I teach at a seminary. But in that moment, I wanted to run up along that line and just knock the coffees out of their hands. <laughs> Why? Because comforting words from comfortable distances are never comforting. Comforting words from comfortable distances are never comforting. Do you know who I thought of in that moment? I thought of running man who had run the miles with me. And I heard his voice saying, you go, you go, you go. You know what, we're tempted, I think, as Christians, when we see things that we don't understand or we see people struggling to be caught in this moment, to step back, and we try to instead uh, create distance with platitudes. I'm praying for you. It's gonna be all right. Let me know how it turns out. You should talk to somebody about that. Hope it works out. Bless you. Comforting words from comfortable distances are never comforting. The gospel calls us to step closer and say, not only that I'm for you, but I'm with you. What does it mean 
to be with you. It means when you see someone grieving, you grieve with them. When you see someone doubting, you doubt with them. When you see someone struggling, you struggle with them. When you see somebody ask questions, you try to figure it out with them. When you see somebody not knowing how to take the step, next step, you sit and stand there as long as possible until they're ready to take that next step. That's what it means for us to be with somebody. And when we do this, we echo the gospel and we encounter Christ as we hear Jesus' words from Matthew 28 that says, I will be with you to the very end of the age. Now think about what that means for a second. The Lord Jesus Christ, who has lived our life and died our debts, sits at the resurrected seat next to the Father. And he is sitting up there, not with a venti Starbucks and a donut, saying, you're almost there. But he says, I am with you. You go, you go, you go. Maybe you need to hear this morning that God is with you, that Jesus is with you. Maybe you know somebody that you need to take a little bit step closer to them and just whisper in their ear saying, I'm with you. It's going to be all right. Don't worry. You're not alone. So we have soldiers. We have athletes. And we have farmers. Now, this is the one I feel least qualified to talk about because I'm just not a farmer. But as I look around um, this beautiful Midwest area, which is a place that I've grown up in, and uh, in, uh, in Milwaukee and in, and in Michigan, um, I'm just struck by the fact that no matter how much technology we have, there's something powerful about the fact that the, a farmer still takes the seed and sticks it in the ground and believes that it will grow. That's very, very great theology too, right? Um, we, we read from the scriptures that we're supposed to plant and water and God makes it grow. So the economy in God's eyes is invest and I'll make it grow. The problem is, is that sometimes we get that reversed. We sort of look at people and we say, I wonder if you're a good investment. Maybe I'll, in, uh, you know, if once you show me what you can produce, maybe I'll uh, invest in you. Like, let's, let's see what you can do, and then we'll, uh, we'll see how much we want to pay attention to you. Completely opposite of God's economy, right? Uh, and what I find, what's really interesting is this, is that I think that we live in a world of, of fear and shame because we're always trying to impress somebody else to, to kind of remind them that we matter, okay? I find this in the research that I've done uh, with college students. Um, it, uh, I've asked them quite pointedly about their spiritual journeys and about the struggles that they went through. And what was interesting is this, is that so many of them, as I collected their data, basically said this, is that they said, I know that I am thinking differently about the way the world works compared to maybe the way that I grew up because of the experiences that I've had or the education that I'm learning. Um, and I'm trying to figure out how that connects with my faith. But I'm really afraid to talk to my home churches about that because if I share a different point of view, if I raise a question, my mom will be upset my dad will be angry, my youth pastor will just not know what to do with me, and my church will put me on the prayer list. And ladies and gentlemen, nobody wants to be on the prayer list. You notice that sometimes young people are afraid to share what they're really thinking because they think there's going to be a relational fallout. That somehow you'll disown them if they don't toe the party line or ask questions as they're making meaning of their lives. At the same time, I, I've done research with parents and older types as well that feel a sense of, of shame. Like they haven't lived up to their aspirations. They feel like hypocrites. They um, wish that they could do some things over and they are felt with this deep sense of, uh, of shame and they're sort of have isolated themselves. And that's a hard place to be as well. 
When have we become communities filled with fear and shame? That's not the gospel. I, th I think people want to be believed in. I think they want to be given the benefit of the doubt. I think they want to be seen as a good investment. And so not only is the gospel about being for you or with you, it also has the sense of wanting to be believed in. Like, I believe uh, in you. What if our communities were known as people that caught each other doing things right? Like, you did that. That was amazing. Do it again. Like, what if we gave each other the benefit of the doubt? What if we saw each other as worth it before we did one thing and called out the best in who we are in each other? Might that be the good news that people are looking for? I believe that when we begin to think of it in this way, we echo the very words of Jesus, where we see throughout the Gospels, Jesus keeps coming back to this phrase, believe in me, believe in me, Believe in me, but here's the subtext. I think between the lines, this is what Jesus is saying. Believe in me, believe in me, believe in me. Why? Because I believe in you. You're a good investment. You're worth it. Before you've done anything, you are worth it. I believe in you. Maybe you need to hear that this morning. Maybe you've been beat up all week and you're like, I am not worth it. I am barely making it. Maybe you just need to hear that the resurrected Jesus looks at you and says, I believe in you. Maybe you can echo that to somebody else that you know that maybe is struggling right now. And you can say to them, hey, I, I believe in you. You're worth it. You're a good investment. So I think we encounter Christ when we as the body of Christ Take seriously the fact that Jesus says to us, I am for you. I am with you. I believe in you. And we actually echo that as we think about the ways that we can say that to others. Maybe, uh, maybe before the weekend's out, you just need to pick up the phone or text somebody and says, hey, I'm for you. Hey, I, I know you're going through some stuff. I'm with you. I, I know things have been crazy, but I believe in you. My friends, may you know that the gospel is good news, that it's good news for everyone, that it speaks to where you are at, where God is there just to be for you and with you and believes in you, and that we have the privilege to live that out in the ways that we spread that good news, that relational good news to others. And may uh, you know God's grace and peace.